Our series that we're knee deep in is on spiritual gifts. I'm warning you that we're about to go deeper into the river. We're not coming out yet. We're going from knee deep to like chest deep. And next week, maybe I'm not even sure we're going to be able to breathe. This is a very controversial topic in the church. And most times that it's taught, it's taught from one perspective or another only. And you know that our job, our, our calling, I think, as a group is to really just shake out things that maybe we've heard about, we haven't really talked about much, and this has been one that you guys have asked to do. So we're knee-deep in it, we're getting ready to go chest-deep. Here's where we are. A rule from our first week, our intro, God enjoys working through people. We're kind of using that as an overall theme to understand why spiritual gifts might exist. We also looked at that ongoing debate between cessationists and charismatics. We're not done with that. It's going to keep coming back because every issue that you asked about depends on which view you take. So we're going to be spending time trying to understand the views. But just to summarize, for those who haven't been with us, cessationists believe that certain gifts have ceased, like apostleship, being a prophet, tongues, prophecy, exorcism, miracles, healing. Those gifts, they claim, don't exist anymore in the church. Those were just in the apostolic age. That's over. Charismatics, of course, believe that all the gifts are active. Okay? In our first week, as you remember, we looked at Scripture together at the competing verses. They're all the same verses. They just interpreted differently. And we thought, for the time being, Charismatics seem to have the better argument, that all the gifts seem active. Okay? And I've told you that that's still open because we're going to have to come back to it. All right? These are all the questions you guys have had. Those are the ones you submitted. All right? Lots of questions about gifts. So it seemed like we had a good topic because people really want to know a lot of stuff. Last week, what we did was we answered these questions. We spent time as a group analyzing some of the questions. What are the key things we talked about last week? You know, you know, we talked about what are the spiritual gifts? Where are they found in the Bible? We actually looked at some of the actual passages. Are they still active today? What about tongues and healings? That's a big, it depends at this point. Again, it depends on which side of the debate you're going to be on. We're going to be talking through that in the next few weeks. Does every Christian have a spiritual gift? Yes. Is it okay not to have a spiritual gift? Well, everyone should have one, so that's the answer there. Are they equally important or equally effective? We spent time there. We also spent time at the bottom of the screen here. Do spiritual gift inventories work? Most of you have now had a chance to take the spiritual gifts inventory. And last week, we critiqued the inventory process. Does it work? How did you think it worked? Did it identify your gifts? As you remember from last week, I identified some of the biases that I thought were in the inventories, how people have a test-taking bias and it seems to pick up on it in the inventory. So, you know, some of you might think, I love the results, I'm happy. Some of you are like, this isn't really me. So we spent time talking about that. I'm not going to rehash it. You know that our talks are available, so you can go back to last week if you're still wondering about some of these questions in more detail. Okay, so let me show you where we're going. We've already done the first two boxes, kind of introducing spiritual gifts, kind of doing the inventories and critiquing them. So now we're about to kind of break off into the different branches of the debate. Now, last week we covered 1 Corinthians 12, and some of you were like, we read an entire chapter of scripture. It was too much scripture. Okay? Wouldn't it be great if we could just do the Bible study and not cite scripture? Wouldn't that just be better? That would be so American of us, wouldn't it? Like, let's just, you know how you, when you're reading a book and there's a big block quote, you just skip the block quote and just go, just explain it to me. I don't want to read the quote. Just tell me what it says, right? And that's the way we tend to do Bible studies sometimes is we just go, oh, do we have to actually read the scripture? Can't you just tell me what it says? Uh, that's what Sunday morning sermons are for, okay? We're actually going to read it. Not only are we going to read it, we're going to read it again, and we're going to read chapter 13, 
and we're going to read chapter 14. We're not going to do all of that tonight, but I'm going to try to get through 12 and 13 with you. Because we started to do it last week, and tonight we're going to tear it apart a little bit more. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. Then we're going to be looking at it from a cessationist view perspective. And lastly, I want to highlight this over here. There's a new view that's coming out in the church. It's being advanced by some people from Biola and Talbot. And their view is, we've totally misunderstood spiritual gifts entirely. There really aren't any spiritual gifts at all. It's really ministries and not gifts. It's such a new view, and it's an interesting view that, of course, we have to at least talk about it because it answers some interesting questions that the other views have problems with. I'm going to leave that for last. But the reason I brought it up just to let you know is it would be kind of a weird twist of the movie to tell you all these things and give you all these gift inventories and then end with, by the way, there are no gifts. You know, That would be kind of a little cruel. So I just want to let you know that there's somebody out there who has the view that we've totally misunderstood gifts as abilities. They're really ministries, and we're going to be talking about that view just in case it kind of resolves some of the other questions you've been having angst with. All right, let's pray and open up God's word. Holy Spirit, this is a topic that is intimately associated with who you are as Lord, as our helper and counselor in the church, as the Lord giver of gifts, if such things are to be given to us. So it's with humility, Lord, that I want to step aside and allow whatever happens in the next few moments in this room to be entirely of you. May you add light and power to the reading of your word. And may you illuminate for us things that maybe we hadn't seen before or that we're learning for the first time. Pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 over the next couple of weeks in detail. You see, Paul wrote these chapters, and they've been the subject of great debate in our church about spiritual gifts. And he was writing to a church to talk to them about spiritual gifts. So it makes sense that this might be the place that we look to understand. Here's some background. What's the city of Corinth? It was probably one of the best-known cities in the Roman Empire, in the known world at that time. It was the center of commerce, culture, religion, and, yeah, vice. Corinth was associated kind of like, in a way, you could associate it with kind of like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was a place where, you know, what's, what happened there stayed there. It was very prosperous. It was in the center of great trade routes that went through the city. And it was in this place that the Temple of Aphrodite stood. The Temple of Aphrodite stood on top of the Acropolis. This was a place where the Stoics, the philosophers, would meet also and speak and debate. So the Corinthians loved debate. They loved to claim their philosophers and to claim their factions. The Temple of Aphrodite was famous because the temple had over a thousand prostitutes who daily descended into the city. And it was an act of worship of Aphrodite to engage in lovemaking with a prostitute. And it was here that Paul establishes the Corinthian church. You guys might remember the term like Paul was a tent maker for a while. This is where he was a tent maker. He went to this city and because this was his profession, he spent two years in Corinth. And then he left. And things didn't go so well in the Corinthian church after he left. These are some of the things that were going on that plagued the Corinthian church. A lot of them were pagan, and they started to slide back into their own way. In the Corinthian church, sexual immorality was everywhere. It was a big problem for them. 
But the worst problem was that the church tolerated the sexual immorality. It kind of found freedom in the forgiveness that Paul had preached so that more and more people in the Corinthian church, they just accepted all sorts of immorality. Immorality with male prostitutes, fornication, lust. Even one of the members that Paul specifically mentions in the letter to the Corinthians who was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church was tolerating it. They were not condemning it. So Paul had to take the opportunity to condemn it. The Corinthian church was a great like amalgamation of believers. But the majority of them were not Jewish believers. But because Corinth was such a trade center, it grew and it brought in all these different ideas. The fact that many of them were pagan worshipers actually becomes important because Paul highlights it in his letter specifically. I note up here that the church was immature. It sought spiritual experience. It didn't care so much about the words of scripture or the words that Paul had taught. It was seeking like a spiritual euphoria. And that's probably because of their pagan background. That was what they were used to. And that's what they valued highest. They broke into factions. You know the famous quote where when Paul says, like, who is Apollos and who is Paul, right? He's speaking to the Corinthian church. You probably heard the verse, wanted to know what, where it came from. It came from here. This is the church because they were so used to hanging out with their philosophers and kind of debating. They were so eager. There was the Apollos camp. There was the Paul camp. They even had the Christ camp. They were different groups. And they were all debating within the Corinthian church about who was right and who was wrong. And he had to correct them about that. So they were a kind of faction. They favored people. Some of them actually challenged the authority of the apostles and said the apostles had no right to teach that they weren't really gifted of God to actually lay down and establish the early church. So they questioned apostleship. There were even clues, which you'll see in a moment, that some questioned Jesus and maybe possibly cursed Jesus in the church. This was not a healthy place. And then the last one says, the church was filled with the use of spiritual gifts. Now, you ever take one of those tests where it says, which one doesn't belong, right? This would be a which one doesn't belong, you know? Uh, formerly pagan, sexually immoral, immature, broken to factions, challenged the authority of the apostles, denied, denounced Jesus, filled with spiritual gifts. Uh, which one doesn't belong? Like the last one. And that's the condition that Paul finds this church when he writes to them in 1 Corinthians. The sad epilogue to this story is he writes 2 Corinthians later. And in fact, even later, we find other church fathers who are still writing to the Corinthians about the same thing. They never got it. It never made sense to them. So what was he writing? Take a look at 1 Corinthians 12 again. We're going to go into it even deeper than we did last week. 1 Corinthians 12, it says this. Now, about spiritual gifts... I do not want you to be ignorant. That's, chap that's chapter 12, verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant. But look at the word spiritual gifts as translated in your Bible. The actual Greek word is pneumatica. The literal meaning of that word is not spiritual gifts. A better translation would just be now about spirituals. Spiritual matters, spiritual things. And I'm going to leave that translation hanging because we're going to come back to the critique later of was he really trying to hit spiritual gifts? 
But here's the thing I want to tell you. He says, about spiritual gifts, and let's put the word in there for now, I do not want you to be ignorant. Last week we made a big point that this is almost a commandment. Like, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. But if you heard what I said just two minutes ago, the Corinthian church was using its spiritual gifts. So when he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, it's not that they don't know about the spiritual gifts. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1.7, it says the Corinthian church have all the spiritual gifts. He recognizes that he's writing this letter of correction, this letter almost of rebuke, maybe slightly in anger, maybe slightly satirical at times. I don't want you to be ignorant. It's a little bit ironic to say to people who are fully using all of the gifts and actually only emphasize the gifts to say, let me tell you a little bit about the gifts. They already know about the gifts. Or do they? And the point really here is he's saying, I don't think you understand what they're for. I don't think you understand what they're about. I don't want you to be ignorant. Walk with me through 1 Corinthians 12. Last week I withheld these two verses because I wasn't ready to talk about them yet. Now we're going to look at them. In verse 2 he says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So he's referencing their prior pagan nature. He says they were led astray, almost pulled in to that kind of worship of idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There's a possibility that people in the church were saying, Jesus be cursed. I mean, that, that's kind of nutty. But Paul knew that there was something wrong with the worship service. In fact, in other parts of 1 Corinthians, what he's saying is, you guys are abusing the love feast. Do you guys know what the love feast is? In their practice in the early church in the first century, before the worship service began, they would get together and have the love feast like a common meal. But what was happening in the Corinthian church was only the wealthy people were going to the love feast. And they were dining on expensive food and expensive wine so that by the time the other people came in, the poorer people, there was nothing left for them to eat and half the church was already drunk. Then, during communion... Those people who had not had anything to eat or drink, the poorer people, basically devoured the communion table. I mean, you ever had a little piece of communion thing when you're hungry and think, it would have been nice if I had a bigger piece, you know? Or like me, you love grape juice so much that when they tease you with that little tiny thimble of grape juice, you just want to gulp down like a whole like thing, just ice cold, you know? They really need that whole tray of grape juice. In the Corinthian church, they were actually drinking to get drunk at the communion table. And by the time they went into worship, everyone was so drunk, they were yelling, screaming, and doing, using all of their gifts in a very confusing way. And that's what Paul was saying. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. And here we have evidence that somebody might have even been saying, Jesus be cursed. It's hard to understand the context we can talk about why it, what it means. It's significant that it says Jesus, not Christ. Maybe it's a Gnostic heresy that's creeping into the church. We can talk about that later. But there's just something wrong with this church. But the main point is he's trying to tell them about the gift. So one more time. This part we started to cover in more detail last week. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them, in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given through the Spirit, given through the Spirit, 
the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, interpretation of tongues. All these are works of one and the same spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. That answers some of the questions we talked about last week, just in case you weren't here. When it says, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. That satisfies our understanding that all of us have been given a gift by the Spirit. What's new this week that we're going to cover? Well, one is, we talked last week about this idea that you could pray for certain gifts. And people have asked about that. Maybe facetiously, but maybe seriously. Can I pray for a certain gift? If you haven't asked the question, maybe you've heard it this way. Is it true that everyone can speak in tongues if they want to? Now remember, we haven't even covered whether tongues are still active. We're still debating that. But let's just say that tongues are active. You've heard people say that if you pray for the gift of tongues, you will receive it. You've heard people say that if you pray for the gift of healing, you will receive it. Who does Paul say gives the gifts of the Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. He makes it clear over and over. Each one does have a manifestation of Spirit, but it's given by the Spirit. That tells us right away, at least biblically, that he's making a strong case that all of you are desiring certain gifts. When they were done with the love feast, when they were done with the communion, they would go inside and they would start this ecstatic worship service. That's why he reminds them about the fact that some of them were previously pagan, because that's kind of the way the Roman pagans would whip themselves up to a frenzy. And they were doing the same thing. But more than that, he identified in them the desire to have the cool gifts. They wanted to have the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophesying out loud and healing and whatever they were doing. They all wanted that. And they all believed that they could all have every gift if you just desired it enough. So there was this chaos going on where everyone was trying to show off their gifts. Now last week we talked about the unity of body, so I'm going to kind of zoom through this part a little bit. But look at it from the perspective now, not just of how we're supposed to use our gifts for the unity of body. Look at it from the perspective that Paul is trying to correct them, that each one of them wants to be something special. He says the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we will baptize by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were given this one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Okay, this is not just a verse on unity. That's one way to look at it. It's a verse on you being selfishly desiring the cool gift, the upfront gift, or believing a teaching that every single person will will get all of the gifts if you just ask for them. He says as an example, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, if the whole body healed, if the whole body spoke in tongues, if the whole body prophesied, read it that way, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? 
But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Could he repeat it any more times? You guys are doing it wrong. That means in our modern day, we should at least accept that Paul's criticism of the Corinthian church isn't just limited in time there. As we analyze this debate on spiritual gifts, I think we need to draw that same truth and understand that if there's a movement somewhere that claims that all gifts are available to all people, if you desire them enough, you'll get them, that is exactly what he was trying to say is not the case. Once again, as if it wasn't already clear enough, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. If you can't catch the analogy there, he's saying, it's okay to have what you perceive as weaker things. They're needed in the body. We actually pay special honor to them. We actually protect them. That's the analogy that he's making to make it clear that God uses all parts of the body. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, then those who have gifts of healings, those who are able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The rhetorical phrases he uses over and over help us to understand that he's saying no. So if we get nothing out of our first real in-depth analysis of 1 Corinthians 12 tonight, it's that if those gifts are active, they're meant to be given as the Spirit gives them, not as we desire them. Okay? So for those of you who are going to sign up for the Healings and Tongues seminar, so that you could make sure that you were blessed with that anointing, Paul is saying that probably doesn't work. Monique? Um, I don't know if you talked about this last week. Like, obviously, you can't have more than one. There are people who have more gifts than just one. Okay, now last week, Philip brought up the next line. Now, he's just said it, that you have your gifts as the Spirit desires, and he's rebuking the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians and telling them that you're not to do what you're doing now and value the upfront gifts, the tongues, the healing, the supernatural gifts, the miraculous gifts. 
And you're not to all believe that you can all go after them in such a way that this place has become chaos where you're all trying to use them. And then there's this curious phrase. He says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. That's the translation that we have in most of our English Bibles. And this has caused a lot of confusion in the church, so I went on a long hunt trying to understand this. Because Philip correctly pointed out, it seems like what he's saying is contradictory. Not just for rules of biblical interpretation, but it would be weird to have hammered this point home five different ways and then say the exact opposite. All right. Now, you guys know my disclaimer. I am not an expert in Greek, but here's what the experts in Greek say this should be read as. This is not meant to be read as a command, like you go eagerly desire the greater gifts. It's meant to be an indictment. Read it this way. But you eagerly desire the greater gifts. The form in Greek that's written, that word is not in there, but it's implied in there. To say, after all this long discussion, he's taking a breath and saying, but you guys, in contrast to everything I just said, desire the greater gifts, quote unquote, greater gifts. Now, it could also be, because we're about to move into 1 Corinthians 13 about love, that the greater gift is love. So you could read it one of two ways. He could either be saying, but desire the greater gift, meaning love, because we're going to talk about it. Or it could mean, but you eagerly desire these greater gifts for yourselves. And that's why he says, I will show you the most excellent way. There's a break in the thought there for a moment. Like, after I've done all this talking, you guys desire the greater gifts let me show you the better way yeah um could you like do that question as like they have their gifts but they they're not using their gifts because they they're like selfish and want the greater ones like oh but you guys don't use the ones that you have because you only desire the greater ones because you don't have them right we know the corinthian church had the fullness of all the gifts because he says that in the first opening parts of corinthians so you're right they probably did have all of the gifts active, but they believed among themselves that you should strive to get the upfront miraculous supernatural gifts and that that was a sign of greater spirituality. It makes sense if you think about it. This is a group of people that broke into factions. I believe Paul. I believe Apollos. I'm with Christ. I'm this, right? So now you could only imagine that they must have been breaking into faction that says, well, I speak in tongues. I'm, I should be the leader. But I prophesy directly from the Lord. You know, but I have the power to heal. And somebody else is over in the back saying, well, like, what about the gift of administration? Like, we'll get to you later. We're worried about the important gifts. And they were seeking that. And you could see because of the confusion that was going on in their worship even, that everybody was trying to have those gifts, forsaking what they were doing. And that's one of the reasons why you have to read that whole analogy of the body two ways. One is, it's clearly saying you can't just choose because you've been assigned something. But it's also saying that if everybody were an eye, the body doesn't work. So you've got to figure out what your role is that the spirit assigned and gave to you and work that role because we're all a body. We need you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Most of you, the only time you ever look at 1 Corinthians 13 is when? At right, at a wedding. Okay, so we're going to look at it in a non-wedding context. So when you're standing up there, it isn't the first time you ever heard it. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me stop there and I asterisk love. The reason I asterisk it is because we hear it so often at a wedding that we think it's applying to the bride and groom. You know, it's kind of a non-offensive thing you could throw out even at a secular wedding. Like, you know, it just sounds so noble. This is not a chapter about like, hey, I just want to take a break here and start talking to you about love. This is a continuation. There's no break between the conversation about tongues. And that's why he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Love being what? Is it eros love? No, he's talking about love being the first among the fruits of the spirit. You know, we looked at the fruits of the spirit yesterday, I mean, last week. It's, it's rendered like as a, the definition of that word being that reasoning, intentional spiritual devotion that's inspired by God's love for us, that kind of love. If I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the greater thing to seek. This is the more excellent way. He goes on, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude or it is not self-seeking. People speculate that he dropped that in there right there to remind them that their method was self-seeking. I want the best gift, the coolest gift. I want the upfront gift. I want to be seen as spiritual. I want people to follow me. I want to be right. And that their method of playing it out in the services was rude. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Think about that paragraph in terms of the Corinthian church that he's speaking to. People who are in factions, people who are allowing immorality, people who are broken down to argue and fight, people who are denying the very apostleship that formed the church and brought the truth to them. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Sound familiar? We covered that in the first week, talking about when some of these things might cease. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully known, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And we're going to stop there because, you know, if we read three whole chapters, that would be more than you've ever had in one night and your heads might explode, you know, or we might accidentally trigger the second coming or putting that much. But remember this part, love never fails, but, but, there's another transitional word, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. In our first intro session, we analyzed this specifically and said, 
that there is evidence that they will cease, but when? And that's what's going to bring us back next week to more on this debate between the secessionist and between the charismatics. Okay? When? It's when the perfection comes. And we said the charismatics believe that's when Jesus returns. The cessationists believe that's when scripture was finally canonized and there was no need for prophecy or tongues. And here's the highlight of where we're going. If you believe that prophecy still exists in the church today, that God can still speak prophecy to people, then you have to believe that he doesn't ever lie, he doesn't, he's never wrong, so that the people who are receiving prophecy have equal weight with the scripture that's already been canonized. And that's what causes so much consternation among cessationists. I'm not going to resolve that issue. I just want you to start thinking about it. If you are able to receive a prophecy from God that begins with, thus saith the Lord and tell the people this, is not that equal to Scripture? And if it's equal to Scripture, are we saying that Scripture is not closed, the canon is not complete, that you are able to add equal authority to Scripture? Just start thinking about that because, you know, we concluded the Charismatics had a little bit of a better argument because if they say that these things will cease when Jesus comes back, that means they're still active. One last clue in how we're going to look at this. When he said there are prophecies and where there is knowledge, he uses a, set, a tense that says it will someday cease, but it's going to require an outside influence, like the return of Christ. For some strange reason, which I can't explain to you, because again, I'm not the Greek expert. When he says when there are tongues, he uses a different form, an intransitive verb tense, meaning that it's just going to cease on its own. We're going to be looking at that and, and trying to ask ourselves, is Paul leaving us a clue? And who's right and who's wrong in this debate? If some of these gifts still exist, especially prophecy, then that must mean that somewhere walking around are a bunch of people who are receiving revelations from God the same way that Moses, Elijah, and all the other prophets received revelation. Should they be writing them down? Should we be putting them in the Bible? I mean, the Lord's not going to lie. Or are they just hearing strange voices? What's going on? It's going to be a little bit more raucous in here. See, it's easy to read scripture together and go, oh, yes. Who's going to disagree with Paul? All right. But when we start asking like the tougher questions, you know, it's going to it get you guys back engaged and the debate will happen again. So sorry I silenced you guys from the debate too much tonight just by reading scripture. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to read 1 Corinthians 14 because he goes on to then specifically talk more as if it wasn't enough. He goes on to talk even more about what's going on, and that's what's going to launch the debate. You're going to see that starting next week when we start talking about what he specifically told them to do and how to act and how to behave with these gifts, it's where we're going to start to analyze. Now let's look at the both sides again in light of everything you've seen in 12, 13, and 14. What do you think? We'll talk about some of those prophecies. We'll talk about some of those movements. We'll talk about some of the prophetic things that are happening and see what you guys think so we can come up with it and then finally come back to if you still think some of those gifts are active, let's talk about what they do and how they are. What I'm going to invite you to do is after we're done, we're going to pray, wrap up with another song or so. Uh, you know, you, we always hang out, spend some time. What I want you to start doing, if you want to, start to give me some feedback on how this is starting to influence your thoughts. Like when Oral Roberts receives a message from the Lord that if he doesn't raise $8 million by a certain date, the Lord's going to kill him and take him home. Is that a valid expression of prophecy? We need to under, like, that's what's happening. That's why the, you know, it's not like these cessations are just completely uptight people who just can't handle God speaking to anybody. And that conversation is going to go from speaking 
to questions like, do miracles still happen? What is a miracle? Does God still heal today? Do people have powers of healing? We're going to talk about all those things. It's going to get more interesting, but we have to go through the scripture first because I want scripture to be our basis. I could just tell you funny stories about all the crazy things that people have said, but I want you to evaluate it in the light of scripture. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your, your blessing of the word tonight. Just a chance to dwell on the things that you inspired the apostle to speak. Lord, show us where we are to take those same words and apply them in our everyday lives and where they were directed to the Corinthians. Give us wisdom and discernment and understanding how we are to use your word. Give us just the light of your word to understand how to better live our lives. Lord, many of us in this room right now are questioning what our gifts might be, what the gifts are, whether we should believe that the gifts are still active. And Lord, I think this is important to you to spend two or three chapters in this letter inspiring Paul to write these words means that it's an important thing that you want us to discover. So I pray, Lord, again, not just for tonight, but throughout this whole week, throughout our whole series, throughout our time, Lord, even throughout our life, that you would constantly shape us and bring us closer to an understanding of what it is you want for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and teach us. pray this in your name. Amen.